Let's, um, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, be with us as we listen to your word tonight. Be with me as I speak. And may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our hearts be mine, dear Lord, blessed be you, the Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Just left the, uh, left the hat there, I think. Um, Pythagoras wrote that the highest goal of music is to connect one's soul to their divine nature, not entertainment. Do we believe that to be the case? A good resounding yes there, yeah. And music can often be for our entertainment, um, and, and certainly it can be very entertaining. Yet the first song that we have recorded in the Bible is this song. This song which speaks of the horse and the rider being cast into the sea. God's triumph over Egypt. The total disrupt, destruction of the Egyptian army. And the final song which we have in the Bible actually does apply to this. But we'll come back to those in just a second. We're going to be looking... Oh, you can't really see that very well. Don't worry, I've got the notes there. Um, we're going to be looking at... Um, at a, um, we're going to be looking at, a, at, a, at the songs of victory, at, at um, uh, the first song in Moses 15, oh, sorry, in Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam, and the song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. We're going to do that briefly. Before we dive into that, I, I want you to have a quick look at the overall way in which the song is, um, uh, is written. If you've got your Bibles open, that would be a good place to start. You'll notice that as you look at the song, it breaks up into, into segments. And so it goes A, B, B, A. It's got, it's got like that sort of pattern to it. Okay, so the overall pattern of the song is there. The, um, the context, of course, is that, just tell me the context. We had that wonderful little summary this morning um, uh, of Exodus 1 to 12. Um, and they've, they've just come through the, uh, they've just come through the Red Sea. Um, and so this is the first song, and the first half is about their deliverance. This is a Lord who, who delivers them mightily. And uh, they're saved by God through crossing the sea. Exodus moves, first of all, in chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, verses 30 and 31, we have that little summary. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then the next bit we get is this song. And it moves from prose to poetry, from action... And, and literally the, the catastrophic destruction for Pharaoh and his army to this song of praise and reflection. In chapter 14, they are trapped to break something in them. They're trapped to accomplish something with, through them. They're trapped to reveal something to them and they're trapped to establish something for them. They come up against the sea, and as far as they're concerned, there is no way out. 
they're sacked. And then God delivers them in a way in which they never could have expected. It's, um, it's also possibly the oldest section of the Bible because it's, as I say, it's the, it's the first song that's recorded. The, the language which is used is, is archaic. Um, there's terms of phrases in there which uh, we don't have anywhere else. It's possibly the, the, the oldest snippet we've got of any of the scriptures. It's, it's very rhythmic and crafted. If you look at it, you can see how it's cyclic, carefully composed. Look at, for example, verses 1 and 4 and the repetition of Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen being cast into the sea. So the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. And then in verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. You can see that, that rhythm, that repetition that's going on there um, and then of them sinking like a stone again in verses 4 and in verses 10 so they're hurled into the sea um, or they're sunk in the sea in, in other translations um, and then um, but the sea covered them in verse 10 they sank like lead so you see the repetition again occurring there's, there's the repeated imagery of the right hand of the Lord in verses 6 and, uh, and again in verse 12 as well. Um, your right hand, O Lord. Your right hand, O Lord. Your right hand, O Lord. And then we've got the imagery of the repetition of God's nostrils piling up the water. Lit we don't think that God's literally going... Uh, uh, uh. It's not a sneeze. This is, this is a figurative theological device showing that the east wind is, is of God. When... When we talk about God's hand, he doesn't have a literal hand, apart from in that of Jesus Christ. When we talk about God's breath, it's the wind that he uses. And so again, we see that um, in uh, verses 8, twice, uh, and 10. And then in verses 9 and 10, you've got that heavy threefold rhythm of the enemy and what the Lord does. So in, verses, uh, in verse 9, you have the enemy boasting. I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoil. Do you hear the heavy rhythm? I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. And then, that next word in verse 10, is a huge one. But, this is what the enemy said they're going to do. This is what the enemy said that they will do with God's people. You blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Again, you see the, the repetition of the, uh, um, uh, of the lead and the stone in verses um, uh, 1 and 10. Um, and then this word in verse 5, depths, it's actually a really odd word. It's, uh, it's more like a, the gurgling of a whirlpool. You can imagine that, that we've got this tide rip that's going down and it's pulling everything into it. And that's sort of being described by the sound of the gurgling. And then they sank, they were swallowed up. It's again, it's a, they went gurgling down. The earth gulped and swallowed them. It's really graphic stuff. It's, it's very poetic. 
really fast, isn't it? And of course, the, um, the earth swallowing them is, uh, is exactly what happens later on in Numbers 31. Sorry, Numbers 16, verses 31 to 34. Koran, Dathan, and Abiram are literally swallowed up by the ground because of their opposition to the Lord and their enemies. And then we have that question that Moses asks in verse 11. He says, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Now, of course, this is one of the slides from my sermon uh, on chapter 3. Um, so I'm not planning to spend long on it. <laughs> but when, when the Lord said to Moses, I am who I am, and what you said, I alone know who I am. You are dependent on what I reveal to you. In every situation, I will show you that I am what you need. And indeed it was so. They needed a deliverer. Egyptian power and a redeemer to bring them to God. The Lord revealed himself as deliverer and redeemer. Indeed, this became throughout the Old Testament his signature too. And that's what we see here. The horse and the rider cast into the sea. Pharaoh's hopes are dashed. Possibly Pharaoh himself is drowned. Because we're unclear on the exact histiosity of, of, of not histiosity, sorry, the, of exactly which Pharaoh it was that they escaped from. There's, there's some very muddled um, uh, rulers of various tribes. And so God says, that's my character. That's who I am. I will be your deliverer. I will be your redeemer. And now that I've redeemed you out of Egypt, I'm going to deliver you through the, the waters. And so we come to the second half of the song, to the dwelling so we have the deliverance in the first half, and then we have the dwelling. He's going to establish them in a new land. He's going to establish them in a land which he has promised them. The Lord has humbled the mighty and the proud. Because of all that he's done, his name is glorified. The people fear, we're told, in, verses four, uh, in chapter 14. But all the nations around are going to fear as well. Because God is so incredible that they are going that, that, that they are in fear of this God. Unlike their gods, who later on we'll 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 see one of the kings comes against Judah and he says, What about all these other nations and their gods which haven't been able to stand before me? But the God of Israel is not like their gods. Who is like you? No one is like you. Moses lists the surrounding nations in roughly the order they've encountered. And we see that God will plant his people in the promised land, which is fulfilled in Joshua later on. Though that's not the end of the story, but Joshua doesn't do God's prophecies. The imagery continues with the you haves in verses 13, 16, and 17, and the you wills in verses 17 and 18. This is how, how God is going to move. You have, it says, God, you have already done these things. And you will, you are going to do these things. It's both a reflection of his present nature, of his past deeds, and of his future promises. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, 
then at the end of, of the song, we have that little bit of trove again in verse 19, uh, where, it's, where it just sums up. Uh, for when the horse of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Now, it's interesting if you look at the geography, there's um, a guy called Ron Wyatt, who uh, if you have a look at his website, he's got some interesting stuff. But one of the things he's found is that there's a, a natural incline in the sea in one particular location. And it goes down on one side and up on the other side. And on either side of this sort of narrow causeway, there's deep drops, 800 foot. The whole thing is 200 foot below the water level. So if the Lord has collected up all the waters in whatever way he's doing it, and he's piled them up, then this natural causeway appears, and they can walk on this causeway across, but still with very deep water on either side of them. I think I, when I've always pictured it before, it could have been, I don't know, like dry land with maybe this, this, this wall of water next to them. Or maybe, maybe the picture you see sometimes of, of that, that tunnel where, where the water's on either side of them. But this makes much more sense if it's, if it's sort of so deep to either side that were you to get in, you, you wouldn't be able to get out. And this causeway running between the two. Then Miriam picks up the song again and just reiterates the same thing as we've seen in verse 1. And so that's, that's the song. And we're going to hear that song now um, because it's, it's such an awesome thing of praise. And as Pythagoras said, it's about connecting to our divine soul. And so this is um, Sergio Beres, um, uh, Moses, Song 7, um, Song of the Sea.
spent far too long putting that video together. Um, <laughs> I'm putting all the words in the right places. Um, but isn't that awesome? That, that, that sense of joy is visible in what she's doing there in that, in that song. And the, the way it connects certainly for me is in a, is in a divine way with my soul. It's, it's, it's an awesome way of seeing it. And so they've just had this incredible experience. They've been delivered from, they've been redeemed from Egypt. They've been delivered through the Red Sea. And God has promised that those Egyptians who are following them, you will never see them alive again today, after today. And then three days later, three days later, they're in the desert and they come across this water and it's bitter. And they go, oh God, why have you brought us out here to die? Do you think they're kind of missing the point somewhat? Three days later. Now, the Mara, the bitter water, would lead to death, to, to death, but God makes the same water sweet for them. He gives them the water to drink. He warns them to obey him as well. Now, if you look at, um, uh, at verse 20, uh, 20, end of verse 25 and verse 26, the people have grumbled to Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for him a statute and a rule, and there he tested him, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Note. If they diligently listen to his voice and obey his statutes, he won't put the diseases on them. He won't put plagues on them. But it's not that it's going to be sickness of the individual. It's diseases. It's plagues. It's community, not individuals. Health, not just healing. The Lord has chosen this people and redeemed them at great cost firstborn of every, of every Egyptian, amongst other things. He has then delivered them through the Red Sea at the cost of Pharaoh's army. And these same Israelites then start grumbling about the water that he's supplying. Now contrast that with verse 27 where um, they come to Elim. And there's 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamp there by the water. And if you, if you look back to Exodus uh, 1, verses 1 to 5, you'll see that when they come into the land of Egypt, there are 12 tribes and 70 persons. The, uh, the detail of 70 palm trees is an interesting one. Elim, they camp at for some time, and doubtless we'll hear more about that further down the line. the song we see the waters of life and death the water which saves them the same water which saves them the same water which brings life to the Israelites brings death to the Egyptians the Mara the bitter water which would have led to death God makes sweet for them same water in Genesis 6 Noah is saved by the waters that destroy everybody else God cleanses his world 
and saves just those who are following him. In 2 Kings 3, 16 to 24, the three kings have gone up into the desert and they've gone the long way round through the desert and they've run out of water and they're all going, what are we going to do? And then the Lord reveals through one of his prophets that if you dig these trenches, water will appear. And they dig the trenches and they get water. And then the enemy sees the water in these trenches and the sunlight reflects off it in such a way that they think it's blood. They go, oh, look, the Israelites and the Judas, Judites have all, have all killed each other. Moab, go down and get the spoil. And uh, they, they end up destroying themselves. The same water that saved them there is the same water that leads to the Moabites' death. And in baptism, again, that sign that we give out so easily in some ways, so difficult to do in others. It's the same water that signs us as Christ's and condemns those who do not raise their children in the knowledge and love of God after making that promise. The same water of life and death. But that wasn't the only song. The finished song. When the people went through, they were delivered by the crossing of the Red Sea. And we are delivered not by the crossing of the Red Sea, but by the cross of Christ. We are saved by God through the cross of his son, as they were indeed. As the people redeemed in Egypt by the sacrifice of a lamb, Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. As the people were delivered by God through crossing the Red Sea, we are delivered through the cross of his son. As the people were trapped, they thought God had forsaken them, yet he delivers them totally from their enemies. As Jesus is dying upon the cross, he references Psalm 22 with its opening, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finishes his life before his resurrection with the words, It is finished, the ending of Psalm 22. In Israelite thought, in Hebrew thought, if you, if you quote the first verse of a psalm, you are, you are saying that you want the whole psalm to be read effectively. It's, it's, it's a, a shorthand reference to it. So he's referencing the whole of that song, his finished song, the song that says, it is done. Death no longer has a hold. You are redeemed through the blood of the Lamb upon the cross, delivered through the cross. And that leads us on to the final song, because in Revelation 15, and you might want to turn to that now, in Revelation 15, um, we see John's vision of, uh, of the end times. And in verse 2, it says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing before the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and, the, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true is your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The final song in the Bible is a mirror image of the first one. In verse 3, we see that they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses and has become the triumphant God. 
who is like you, asked Moses in Exodus 15, verse 11. Well, no one. For who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. As we close, Exodus 15, verse 18, is that note of praise to God's people throughout all the ages. The reason Moses' song is fitting for all redemptive history is because God has triumphed gloriously. He has risen up like a flood and brought us through in deliverance. And not just over Pharaoh, but over death and Satan. And so we can say together, the Lord will reign forever and ever.